Good morning. If you'd like to follow along, Scripture is Hebrew 10, 15 through 31. The Holy Spirit also testified to us about this. First he said, This is a covenant I will make with them. After that time, said the Lord, I will put my law into their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he added, Their sins and their lawless act I will remember no more. And there... And where these have been forgiven, there will no longer any sacrifice for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter in the most high place by the blood of Jesus, by the new of the living way, opened for us through the curtains, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from the guilt conscience that we have of our body washed with the pure water. Let us hold unwaverly to the hope we profess and that he who promised is faith. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards the love and good deed. Let us not give up the meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberate, keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth. No sacrifice for sin is left, but only the fear expectations of the judgment in the raging fire that will consume the enemy of God. Anyone who rejects the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testament of two or three witnesses. How much more severity do you think a man deserves to be punished who has been trampled? Man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God under the foot, who has treated as an unholy thing of the blood of the covenant, and that has sacrificed him to be insulted by the Spirit of the grace. For we know him to have said, It is mine to avenge, I will pay, repay again. The Lord will judge his people. It will be a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Thank you, DRC. I wanted to begin this time of the service with a scripture reading that shows two things. Both the incredible benefit of what we receive through Jesus Christ. If you listened carefully, you caught the promise of what Jesus gives us is found in a new heart so that we have God's laws inside us so that when we are tempted, we understand what is wrong and by the grace of God, we begin to change so that we love to do what's right. It's not that someone is standing over us and forcing us to do what's right. It's that we're changed from the inside out. That's the first part of that passage that DRC read. But the second part says this, that if you reject what God has done for us in Christ, there's no other sacrifice for sins and there's nothing left but the fearful judgment of God. And this morning, I would invite you to pray with me for the passage that I'm going to preach through in Luke chapter 20, because 
I believe there is incredible life and health and blessing there, but there is also a fearful warning, and I don't want to get this wrong. I want to hold up that life. That's why we're here. We're here to worship the God that offers us life, but I want to be faithful to issue the warning. And so would you pray with me as I approach my text in Luke chapter 20? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are the one who spoke and light shined in the darkness. You are the one who sent your Son who is the light of the world. And Father, I pray that that light would shine brightly as we carefully listen to your word. Let my words be accurate and faithful and may our hearts be open to what your scripture says. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the most precious promises in all of the Bible that I would encourage you to know, to remember, and to cling to is the promise of Jesus that if you seek, you will find. We find it actually all throughout the scripture. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom is seen calling out in the streets and promises that if you seek her, you will find her. But even more than wisdom for life is the true wisdom, Jesus Christ We've been carefully going through the book of Luke for a long time, and so maybe you remember from Luke chapter 11, Jesus said this, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. God does not lie, and he does not issue promises like that unless he is willing to do what he promised. I was at a retreat last weekend with a good friend, my friend Ernesto, who's a pastor up in Flint, and he told his salvation testimony, and he grew up partly in Flint and then moved to Waterford. It's a strange and different experience for him, and one of the things that he said Uh, He was saved as a result of the testimony of a kid that he loved to stuff into lockers. And one day that kid did something incredibly kind for him. He he paid his lunch so that Ernesto would not be embarrassed in the lunch line. and, And he said it totally confused him. He didn't get it. He didn't understand it. So he followed this kid home from school. He said, what did you do that for? And his, his, now his friend, but then just the kid that he picked on, said, well, I had a debt that I couldn't pay, and someone paid it for me. And it went just totally over my buddy's head. It, it made no sense to me. He said, what are you talking about? Like somebody paid your lunch for you or something? He said, no, man, I, I had a debt before God that I couldn't pay, and Jesus paid it for me. And my buddy Ernesto said, that's stupid, and he walked away. But it started a relationship, and Ernesto was just so curious about who this young man was and what his family was like. And so he started spending some time at their house, started attending church with them, heard the gospel, heard the gospel a ton of times, and just didn't do anything for him. He didn't understand it. He didn't care. But one day, after about a year 
of attending church and being around this family, he said, I prayed a simple prayer. He said, the words weren't special or anything. I didn't really understand very much, but all I did was I prayed, God, if you'll have me, I'm yours. He said that was another great disappointment in his life because he felt nothing. He said he thought clouds would part, God would speak from heaven and say something like, you are my beloved son. And none of that happened. So, he went and found that kid and beat him up again. Then he went home, got into, his fight, got into a fight with his mom, said a, said a horrible thing to her, said, said a curse word. And he said all his life, when he did things like that, there was an inner voice that just gave him a high five. Good job! You showed that kid. You showed your mom. But he said when he went to his bedroom that night, there was a voice that said to him, Kenny's been real kind to you. He didn't deserve what you did to him. And your mama's a good woman. She didn't deserve what you said to her. And he thought, oh no. For the first time in my life, he said, I let God into my life and he's messing stuff up. That happened to him, and he said he, God has been messing stuff up in his life ever since. You know, that was over 30-some years ago now. That happened to him because of God's faithfulness to this promise. If you seek me, you will find me. And he didn't know much, he was just a kid. But he asked God, God, if you'll have me, I'm yours. And God kept this promise to him. And the Holy Spirit came and indwelled Ernesto so that he could not continue in sin the way he used to. He could not dishonor his mother. He could not hate his neighbor without conviction from within. And God has been changing him ever since. That's what happens when you seek God. But the question that we need to wrestle with today, because it's the question that we're confronted with in Luke 20, is what happens if you don't seek God? What happens if you know something about Jesus, but you don't listen to him? This is what happens in Luke chapter 20. And I want to take you through it verse by verse And see what happens when we approach Christ not with honest seeking, but with a dishonest heart. So look with me at Luke chapter 20. And I want to show you a dishonest question exposed. Look with me at verses 1 through verse 8 of Luke chapter 20. Scripture says, One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple... And preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? And he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven... He will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death. 
for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Notice first what Jesus is doing in this passage. You heard from Pastor Chris last week how Jesus goes in and cleanses the temple, how Jesus has a passion for God's house. Verse 47 of chapter 19 says, He was teaching daily in the temple. Jesus Christ is a preacher and a teacher. He has a passion for the word of God. And if you say that you are a follower of Jesus, but you don't care about what he taught and you don't care about the word of God, I would question whether or not you really know who Jesus is. This defines who he is in his earthly ministry. His desire was for you and I to know God, and he brought people to God through preaching and teaching. And specifically, he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. And we've talked a little bit about this through the, through the book of Luke. I believe the clearest way for us to explain the gospel is in the phrase, Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. That's how you have peace with God. That's how you obtain forgiveness, is by trusting in the work of Christ on the cross. But the gospel of the kingdom is broader than that. It includes the simple gospel of Christ's death and resurrection, but it also explains what God's plan for all of us is, that he is establishing King Jesus, and that he is creating a kingdom where Christ will rule, where there will be peace and joy and blessing for all of eternity. And Jesus, based on all the teaching of the Old Testament, is going around and telling people that time is at hand. Because the king was there. And so, they ask him, what authority do you have to say this? How can you know this for certain? And it's actually a really good question. It's a question we're faced with all the time. Not about the kingdom of heaven being at hand, but particularly the return of Jesus. If you've been around Christians for any length of time, every few years, some fool will say, I know the day Jesus is returning. And people will interview them. You'll see them on the news sometimes. Sometimes it's prominent pastors say, I've cracked the code. I know the day. The Bible says, no one knows the day. So if you hear someone making that claim, they do not know the word of God. Or they don't believe it. We ought to always ask, what authority do you have to make such a claim. And if Jesus had answered these people, this is what he would have said, because this is what he said in John chapter 12, verse 49. If you want to jot down that reference, John 12, 49, Jesus says this, his authority came straight from God the Father. Jesus said, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. 
So if Jesus had answered openly, he would have said, God the Father has given me authority to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, to tell you that the kingdom of God is at hand. And if you dismiss me, you dismiss the Father. That's what he says all throughout the gospel of John. But that's not what he does here. He does not openly tell them that because he knows they will not believe him even if he spoke openly with him. It is a terrible thing when your heart is so hard that Jesus will not speak plainly to you. If you notice carefully in the text, as they are discussing his question, they never discuss what they think or believe, ever. Did you notice that? Look again at at verses 5 and 6. So as they discuss it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? Do you remember what the preaching of John was like? You, you can read about it in the early chapters of Luke's gospel. John is saying to the people, repent, repent, because the king is coming. He's urging them to recognize their sinful ways and to be ready for the kingdom of God. And he openly testified, he said, I'm not the Christ, I'm getting the way ready for the Christ. So if they admitted that he genuinely spoke for God, they would have exposed their own hard hearts because they did not repent. They did not believe John as a prophet. They never even consider whether or not they admit that he's a prophet. The next thing they consider is if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. That is not how you are supposed to handle truth. If you know the truth, it doesn't matter what other people think. You are called to be faithful to what God has said. But if you have your eye on popular opinion, whether it's in the church or outside the church, asking yourself, how are people going to take it if I say that? You are in real danger of Jesus not even bothering to talk to you. Because you don't have a heart to listen. It's my prayer that that would not be true of any of us. That we would remain open hearted to the truth of God's word. Jesus does what he always does as he talks to people with hard hearts. He gives them a parable. And in this case, it is a thinly veiled parable that is a warning to those with hard hearts. Look at verses 9 through the first half of 16 with me, and let's look at a pointed parable. We've seen a dishonest question exposed. Now let's look at this pointed parable. It says, And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when that time came... He sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third. And this one also they wounded and cast out. And then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. And perhaps they will respect him. 
But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now this is a thinly veiled story of exactly what God had been doing and was doing. The father had chosen a land for his name that's very much like the vineyard. The land was Israel and the capital city was Jerusalem. You can read throughout the Old Testament how God said, this is the place I have chosen to set my name. But the people rebelled and they did not worship God and the entire Old Testament describes their rebellion and how the father sent prophet after prophet to confront their sin, to speak with them, to call them to repentance so that God could continue to pour out his blessing. And they killed and murdered the prophets. I've been reading through Jeremiah in my devotions. Jeremiah again and again is cast into prison and into pits. He's forced to live without basic necessities Because the people of his day didn't want to hear his message. Again and again he calls them to repent and they will not do it. And so as the people of this land that the father owned and the father chose do not repent. The father sends his beloved son. And the son preaches and teaches and the son calls people to repentance. And what happens? They kill the son. And so the father destroys the tenants and he gives his gifts and his blessings to others. That is why there is no temple in Jerusalem today. That's why you don't meet literal Pharisees anymore. They experienced the judgment of God. People didn't want to believe that that would really happen. They understood what Jesus meant. They understood that he was telling them, these things that you love and treasure, this temple that you're so proud of, this city that you believe is protected by God, none of those things matter if your heart is not right with God and you will lose them all. You can read in Romans 9 through 11 how God's perfect plan through the rejection of God's people, as they pushed the Messiah away and killed him, God's blessing was poured out on the entire world as the gospel went out. That doesn't mean that God is done with the Jewish people. Read Romans 11. There is a time when they will recognize who Jesus is. But recognize what happens when you harden your heart and reject Jesus Christ. It leads to your own destruction. The people hearing Jesus did not want to think that God would ever judge them. They certainly didn't want to think that God would judge their city again. And in some sense, you have to appreciate the time in which they lived. If you know your Old Testament history, you, you have to recognize God was doing some visible work. 
They had been sent into exile in Babylon. Their, their city had been destroyed once before. The temple that they loved had been demolished. And they saw under the ministry of people like Ezra and Nehemiah, they saw God bless and they saw his promises come true as exiles returned and the temple was rebuilt. You can imagine the excitement and the momentum as they realized God's promises were coming true and they could see it and be part of it. And yet, as the Old Testament closes, even though they have a temple, and even though the city is rebuilt to an extent, they are not experiencing the blessings of God. And again, the prophets are coming and confronting their sin. And again, they are not listening. For 400 years, God is silent with the people who rejected his open teaching and preaching. And when Christ comes, the people could look and they could see a glorious temple. They said it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. That it was magnificent. And so the people of Jesus' day could say, look, God is doing something. We have this temple again. We can keep our feasts. And there were a few people hanging on for the promises of God. People that Luke introduces you to, like Simeon and Anna. People who hungered and longed for God's righteous blessing. Who were humble and repented at the preaching of John. Who were eager for God to bless again. But that's not what most of the people did. Most of the people rejected Christ. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, he is saying to them yet again, If you reject me, there is nothing left but destruction for you. And Jesus said that this had to happen. It was part of God's plan. And his plan comes with this blunt warning. It's like he takes the veil away. And he's not speaking in a parable anymore. He openly says what this means. Look at the reaction and Jesus' blunt warning in the second half, verse 16 through verse 19. The people say when they heard this, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And the scribes, And the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. This verse that Jesus quotes, the stone that the builders rejected had become the cornerstone, this comes from Psalm 118. I'd encourage you to read that maybe sometime this week. Psalm 118 describes a good and a righteous person being surrounded by enemies. And it's a prayer and a plea for God's rescue. It describes how that righteous person is disciplined by God. And then you find this verse. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
And this is exactly what happened to Jesus. He was surrounded by enemies. You see his enemies here. He was disciplined by God, not for his own sins, but for ours. And then he was exalted. And the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Christ being the cornerstone means that he is the first and most important piece of God's new temple. He is the first stone laid and every stone laid after is laid in reference to him. He determines the shape of the whole building. He is the most foundational piece. Paul says in Ephesians 2.20, You and I are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus being the cornerstone. Though the people rejected him, God exalted him. And we as a church have no unity unless we are connected with Jesus Christ. And if we as a church, First Baptist Church of Holly, if we lack unity, it's a sign that Jesus is not our ultimate foundation. And that's a sign that should make us tremble. Because if you or we reject Jesus and try to build something without him, It might look good for a little while, but it will ultimately be destroyed. It was true then, and it is true now. In fact, more than ever, we should believe the clear teaching of Christ, that rejecting Jesus leads to destruction, because God poured out his judgment on the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. History records the truth of what Jesus said, and the consequences for rejecting Christ. This is still true of individuals, and it is true of churches. And First Baptist Church of Holly, I want to say to you, I believe we can do incredible things for God, but only if we are wholly devoted to King Jesus. If you learn from His teaching... And if you obey his commands, and if you long for his coming, nothing can stop us until the return of Jesus. Part of learning his teaching and obeying his commands is recognizing that everything in this book is the word of Christ. What did the beginning of our passage say? That he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. He was continually devoted to the entire word of God. You and I must not pick and choose which parts we like. We must, we must accept all of Jesus' teaching as we find it in the scripture. Because if we don't, we are building on a different foundation and it is shifting sand and it will sink. If you hear an unpopular teaching of Jesus and your first reaction is, what will other people think if they hear that? Or, so-and-so left the church because of that verse. If that's your reaction, you are living like a Pharisee. And if we seek to follow Jesus' instructions for what our church should be, and we are more worried about how people will react, more than we're concerned about what Jesus Christ thinks and what he's written in his word, 
We have a deep, deep problem. And I believe that if that's you, if your heart says, what does so-and-so think? You need to repent, or the warning of this passage will apply directly to you, and to the extent that our entire church thinks that way, the warning of this passage applies directly to our church. You might wonder why. You might feel like this warning is just for the Pharisees. But the reality is, Jesus warned churches of the exact same danger. And I'll remind you of where. If you go to the opening chapters of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2, Jesus warned the church in Ephesus that they had left their first love. And if they did not repent, he would remove their lampstand. He would close the doors of their church, in spite of the fact that they had a great legacy and they'd been there for years, Jesus said, if you don't love me more than anything else and obey my commands, I will close your church. The church in Sardis, this is in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus said, I know your works, they did good things. They were known in their community for doing good things. And the early church was known for rescuing abandoned infants, for feeding the poor. But Jesus said, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. And why were they dead? Because they were not connected with Jesus. They had lost the cornerstone. They had built on a different foundation. And Jesus told them, you need to remember what you have received and heard. Remember the gospel. Remember the clear teaching of Scripture. Remember the Word of God. And he said that if they didn't do that, if they didn't remember how they were saved, and if they didn't remember what their main mission was in pointing people to Christ, that he would come like a thief against them. No one in Sardis or in Ephesus was bemoaning Roman culture. Like, oh, we just can't be a church because the Roman culture is so out of control, it's crazy. They feed us to lions. You can't build a church when they're feeding us to lions. No one said that. The greatest danger to the church in Ephesus and the greatest danger to the church in Sardis was their own unfaithfulness. And Jesus said, if you don't repent, I will end you. And I believe that that is still true to this day. Many of us know the gospel. Many of you could rattle it off with me and and say, Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. The question I have for you, whether you've known the Lord for five minutes or 50 years, the question I have for you is, is the gospel of Jesus Christ still precious to you? Do you love it? Are you thankful That Jesus has forgiven your sins. Do you weep when you remember his suffering and know it was for you? Do you shout for joy when we celebrate the resurrection? Do you long to see his return? Do you love him? And I want to urge each of you to examine your own heart, and I want to ask our church, let us examine our culture as a church and ask ourselves, is Jesus Christ our cornerstone? Is he really? 
Because if he is, we should not be able to contain the gospel. Everyone we meet should know that our sins have been forgiven and we love the God who showed his love for us on the cross of Christ. And the God who showed his power when he raised him from the dead, that is our hope. And if that is the foundation of our church, I believe nothing can stop us. If you're here today and you're not sure that you know the Lord Jesus, I would urge you today, Jesus says, the way that you accept him, the way that you receive him, is simply by faith. You might know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Believe in him. You can do that privately by confessing your sins to God and asking for forgiveness. And I would urge you, if you've never done it, to do it publicly by being baptized, saying, I died with Christ. All of my sins were paid for when he died for me. And I am raised with Christ. I would urge you, if you're not sure that Jesus is your Savior, you need to do that. And church, let us be open and honest with ourselves and think about who we are as a church and if Jesus is truly our foundation. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, Lord, you are good as we sang. Your mercy endures forever. You have promised that those who seek you finds you. And Father, as best I know how, and as best as we know how, we are seeking you now. Let us find you. May we feel the burden of our sin and know your forgiveness personally. And Lord, may the foundation of this church be built firmly on the cornerstone of Christ. Lead us in faithfulness by your Holy Spirit. Let us be faithful until the day of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.